What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection. This is episode 69 of the show, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. Ben, what's going on, man? How are you doing? How's your How's your holidays? Uh, it was all right. We had a little COVID run through the family, so we had a very isolated Thanksgiving this year. But uh, <laughs> uh, otherwise, it's uh, I, I missed you last week. That's uh, we... <laughs> yeah. We'd planned we'd planned to be off. Regardless, but I think not having the podcast uh, at all to, to be a factor was probably very beneficial for you. Dealing with a, a young child and COVID doesn't sound very fun, but uh, I'm sure it's all worth it. No, it was a little good downtime for you, though. Yeah, it was. It was. Maddie, Maddie was working the whole week outside of Thanksgiving Day, so we, we didn't get to travel down to North Carolina for the family, but we had a, a pretty chill day. We, we actually made like a full Thanksgiving meal for just the two of us, so we had a lot of leftovers, um, but it was good food. It was nice to, to just chill out for that day. Not, not too much crazy happening on the baseball front over Thanksgiving, it didn't seem like. Um, we, we'll get into some of the deals and, and some of the rumors that's going on in this podcast, but no, it was good, and... Um, we also had UNC win last night and Duke lose in in, in college basketball, so that's a good uh, kind of end cap to the holidays for me. Yeah, I know you're you're fired up about that. that I'm was... ready for college football season to be over and college basketball season to be here as a as a Tar Heel. It is always a, a good time of the year. Yeah, that was definitely a wake up call when I moved from uh, uh, Massachusetts down to the Raleigh Durham area when I started working at BA and you're like, wait, we have to, we have to care about college basketball here. We have to choose UNC or Duke (laughs) or more, more than care. It's like a religion. Well, also I, when you would have come down back then, uh, there were probably like what five UNC alums in the office at the time. There's, there's definitely more three or more, right? It was John, Will, Aaron. Uh, Is there anyone else I'm missing? There was one point we had four, I think, in the office at once. Matt Blood. Okay. Man, I didn't. I'm. I never really. I, I guess Kyle is kind of a Duke fan. His parents both went to Duke, and and we've had some, some just friendly banter about UNC Duke. But really, there's. It's a bit sad, actually, in the office. I'm the lone UNC alum at, at BA. It used to be a bit of a pipeline, and not if I'm if I'm gone. And everyone's gone at this point, so I gotta, I gotta stick around. Yeah, now we're, now we're getting a little too Massachusetts heavy, huh? We really are. There's like, it's like BA 2.0 in Massachusetts between you, between Peter, between Jeff, between Mark Chiarelli, who's doing awesome stuff for us on the website. I, I mean, do you guys like get together and hang out and make fun of us Southerners at this point? Because I think, I think the Northerners uh, are are more. I think there are more Northerners in the office now. And I don't know if Matt Eddy, who is from New York, but has been in North Carolina for a while. I'm not sure if he considers himself a Northerner or a Southerner, but man, it's the tables have turned lately. Yeah. I mean, those, those conversations will remain private. So mm, okay. Worry about that. Gotcha. All right. Well, I'm going to have to try and like break into one of these secret meetings and see what's going on and make sure I'm not on the chopping block with you guys. Yeah. I don't know what meetings you're, you're, you're referring to. <laughs> All right. Let's get into some baseball talk, Ben. There's a lot going on. Winter meetings are, are coming up. I'm not sure if that's something you get excited about or look forward to. It is now annually where the draft lottery takes place. So that's definitely something I'm, I'm paying attention to and excited to see how that unfolds. We haven't had a ton of huge deals. Aaron Nola signing a $172 million seven year deal to return to the Phillies is probably the biggest one. Um, but maybe the most interesting one is is a deal that, as of at least as we're recording this, 
I don't know that it's official, but it has been reported that the Brewers are going to extend Jackson Chorio to an eight-year $80 million. I think those are around the terms uh, that were discussed or reported at least. Um, the biggest extension ever for a player who's yet to debut. That is kind of a fun one. Um, and, and as one of the better prospects in baseball and as you covering the Brewers for us for the Prospect Handbook chapter, you might have thoughts on that. We also had a top 100 update for the 2024 class. So there's plenty to talk about today. Uh, and we also have all of our National League top 10s on the website right now. So if you want to get a head start on the Prospect Handbook content uh, or at least get a glimpse of half the league's top of the farm system prospects, you can do that right now on the website. But I guess I'm throwing a lot here at you. Uh, where do you want to start today? Yeah, I love the Brewers being able to, I mean, it sounds like closing in. Maybe by the time you guys are listening to this, it's already done, but it seems like they're closing in on a big contract, big, like not really big by major league free agent standards, obviously, but um, certainly big, big just by, a big, big by extension standards, big by like the precedent of this sort of contract. It would be a record breaking deal of this type. Yeah. Um, big for, big for Jackson Cherry, obviously. Mm. Um, but I, I love it for the brewers. I mean, I, I haven't seen the final terms, but if they're going to get, you know, eight years, 80 million, if it's something in that neighborhood two club options as well, basically you're buying all of his twenties for uh, a player who could end up being a franchise cornerstone for you. And at a, you know, a pretty reasonable price where even if it doesn't work out, this is not a deal that's going to hamstring even a smaller revenue franchise. So um, to be able to lock in a player of, of that caliber, uh, I think is uh, tremendous. Uh, obviously, I think Churio is probably going to leave a lot of upside on the table for himself. But I mean, at the same time, yeah, I mean, like he did sign a few years ago for a, a pretty good bonus. But I mean, $80 million guaranteed or whatever mm-hmm. it ends up being is like, <laughs> yeah, like we can walk through and talk through academically the expected value of what he could yeah expected value is is a lot different than that actual number sitting there in your bank account when you're 18 years old but 19 years old so uh, yeah you can't blame him at all it it feels similar to the ronald Acuna jr deal when he signed it like if you wanted to criticize it from from like a labor perspective you probably could but at the same time if anyone was in that position um, you're, you're basically setting yourself up for generational wealth. Um, so it's, it's hard to knock that deal. I mean, if you look back at, at some of the more, uh, some of the bigger extensions among players who, who had yet to log any MLB service time, you're looking at Luis Robert. He signed for six years, 50 million when he was 22 years old. Uh, Eloy Jimenez, six years, 43 million. Scott Kingery, six years, 24 million. Evan White, six years, 24 million. Um, so it is a record-breaking deal in, in that regard. And it's not altogether too far off what Ronald Acuna Jr. signed. Um, I believe he signed this in his age uh, 21 season, if I'm remembering this correctly. But he signed an eight-year, $100 million contract. Um, I mean, as soon as he signed it, People were kind of criticizing it as not nearly as, as valuable as Ronald Cunha actually was. But 
again, like you're locking that in. There is something to the security and the certainty you get. You never really know what's going to happen. You could have injuries. Uh, and I mean, with Chorio, while we all expect him to be a, a really dynamic player, he still has is yet to play a single game in the majors. So being able to, to lock in that sort of money for yourself is is quite it's got to feel good. And he's also going to set himself up for another contract at the end of this deal. If he's the player we all expect him to be, he'll he'll be setting himself up for for another big contract. Yeah, Corbin Carroll, it was, what, eight years, $111 million. He had been in the big leagues for, like, a month. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess that t- technically takes him out of the yeah, cutoff. Yeah, that, or that no takes him out of that specific time, but... one. But, yeah, his deal was eight years, $111 million. Um, Yeah, $111 million guaranteed. He got a $5 million signing bonus. So yeah, that's, a, that's a good comparison, too. Yeah, I think it's – do you think it's a, a risk – for the Brewers, given that Churio hasn't really, I mean, hasn't really played much above double A. Yeah, I think it's a risk in as much as any deal like this has to be a risk. Like there's a chance he's just simply not as good as we expect him to be. Like the fact that you're giving a player who has such limited upper level minors experience this sort of money, I think it can only be a risk, but I think it's a risk that, that really every team in baseball would love to take on because just given the average annual value that this contract is going to, or should end up being like, it's not going to really hamstring them financially. And if you're a smaller market team, like ensuring that you get a few extra years of a player like this for really good value is probably how you want to operate. I mean, this is kind of how the Braves have been able to, secure such a strong core they've had a lot of these deals these like team friendly deals where they're buying out years for young players who are either not very established or only recently established themselves in the big leagues it it creates a lot of flexibility like locking in the certainty on your payroll um doing at a low aav i think is what all these teams are are valuing so i mean i i think it's it's a risk that that you'd want to take i don't know i don't know how you would be upset about this given given the caliber of player we, we think of Jackson Chorio. I mean, I, I guess the John Singleton deal doesn't look great right now, but I don't know. What do you well, think? Well, that's the thing is that I think people, the way people think about risk and when it comes to the quote-unquote proven major league players compared mm. to the, you know, the quote unproven prospects is not, not in proper alignment. There's there is a greater degree of certainty involved when you're projecting a player who has a track record in the major leagues compared to a prospect who's only reached double A or triple A. Uh, but that past big league performance is not a guarantee of future big league performance. So yeah, you, you can point to the list of prospects and find players who haven't panned out. Although, I mean, the track record of top five, overall prospects in baseball especially position prospects is yeah pretty incredible given given his age given his tools given the the minor league production he has uh shown like i I imagine choria would be at at the very top end of like conviction you can possibly have in a prospect and to your point about the elite level hitting prospects like we have so much data on these guys now that can help you feel more convicted uh, in their ability in their skills and their underlying peripherals. Like Jackson Chorio is just not a player that 
if if he fails, he can still if he doesn't live up to his expectations, he could still be a very good player, and this deal could still be very solid for both sides. I think like this is a player who you put sixty hits, seventy power, seventy speed, sixty fielding. The only tool that's really not like jumping off the page at you is the arm, which is the least important of this package for a player who's playing the position that he's playing. He's gotten the Ronald Acuna Jr. comps so, like there is this MVP franchise caliber upside, but there are just so many things he does on the field. Uh, I, I think there are a number of really solid landing spots for him as an everyday player who, again, is still living up to what you would want for the contract, even if he doesn't hit like a 90th percentile outcome. Yeah, I mean, you can say, sure, he's he's 19 years old. He doesn't have a track record in the big leagues yet. But, um, yeah, sometimes guys end up being bust even guys who are top five overall prospects in baseball uh it's mm. pretty it's 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 very uncommon but it does happen more often they end up being perennial all-star types um but you can say the same looking at the track record of major league free agents just look at some of the contracts the big contracts in the game right now the teams gave to you know chris bryant for almost 200 million dollars anthony rendon mm. to 245 million uh, yeah Trevor- i mean the the cardinals are paying sonny gray basically the same amount of money 75 million dollars for three years uh for for a middle mid-30s pitcher like i would rather spend 80 million on a guy like Chorio. yeah but i i guess like my bigger point is yeah these these guys all you know javi baez like Stanton is still, they owe him another hundred million dollars still. Like Carlos Rodon, a pitcher a little bit different, but like these guys were all proven MLB stars, but you're still making a bet on the unknown of their future. And and with free agents, you're talking about betting on their thirties when they're in their decline phase, when their skills atrophy injuries hit them harder as as opposed to a prospect who's, 19 20 21 years old you're, you're betting on their 20s on the upswing of their career going into their prime years yeah i think that's a good point like the the lack of track record is a risk but just reinforcing that just because a player has major league track record your point of like that that's not a guarantee of future performance at that same level is is worth reinforcing here because it is probably just easy to kind of hand wave away. Oh, he hasn't played in the majors. You don't know what you're getting. Well, yeah, you don't really know what you're getting with a lot of post-peak big league players who are getting much larger contracts as well. So that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, you might want your team to go out and sign Matt Chapman and someone's probably going to go out and give him $100 million or $150 Yeah, be more than $80 million. <laughs> Yeah, but, like, but who, would you, like, who would you rather have for the next six years? Would you rather have... Would you rather have Chapman or would you rather have Junior Caminero, right? Like Caminero mm-hmm. hasn't proven anything yet. He's been in the big leagues for like 17 minutes. But I, I would take Caminero without much hesitation. Or or if you, you know, again, like well. setting money, yeah, setting money aside for the next, next seven years, would you rather have Jackson Churio or would you rather have Cody Bellinger? You know, Bellinger's turning 29 next season, so he hasn't hit his age 30 year yet. But again, like someone's probably going to give him, I'll just be conservative and say probably like minimum 150 million or so. And, mm-hmm. and, if, and if you want to say Bellinger, you'd rather have him. Like, I think that's fair. 
but you're getting him for his age 29 through what 35 seasons yeah in that scenario as opposed to Cheerio from you know age 20 or, to 28 or, <laughs> yeah or like early to mid 20s I think a lot of teams would rather have Jackson Cheerio no I think you're right and I mean this this highlights how important it is to do a really good job scouting the international market like your ability to negotiate with these players before they reach free agency is is super valuable and to get to that point you first have to scout and develop a a franchise caliber player which is obviously easier said than done but the brewers have done a really nice job of it here yeah so i mean like what the brewers are doing like again like they're essentially securing the rights to all of his 20s so if he turns out to be like you said like ronald acuna 2.0 it's going to be an incredible deal for the Brewers, mm-hmm. e- even if he turns in just to do a, you know, a steady what's, everyday player, it's probably what's the be a worst deal for them. What's the worst sort of role he could turn out to be where you'd still be happy with the contract? Do you think if it is uh, eight years, 80 million that's been reported? Yeah. I mean, if he's like a league average player, like I think that's still going to end up being a good mm-hmm. deal for, for the Brewers, like maybe not like a ton of surplus value, in that instance, yeah. but uh, you know, like th- th- there's some risk too. Maybe he ends up being Ruben Rivera, right? Like then it doesn't work out, but a- again, it's not a contract that's just going to totally kill the brewers. If he ends up being a, a total bust and, and mm-hmm. the upside of the deal, if it all does work out, makes it such a, uh, such a no brainer to me for, for Milwaukee. Yeah. I mean, this could easily be like the most valuable, Play in terms of like what what a pay, players being paid, how many years of control you have. I think most people consider Ronald Acuna Jr.'s contract and and just his the, the player contract combination to be the most valuable in the big leagues. This one could easily be right in that same neighborhood. Yeah, I I think we should see. I mean, more. I think more teams should be trying to do this. Not that there's there's a lot of Jackson Churios running around in the minor leagues, but even for players a tier or two tiers. I would be really interested to know like how often teams make these overtures and how often they're denied by the player. Like I would love to know, (laughs) I would love to basically be a fly on the wall for those, those conversations. Cause you have to imagine any team that has a, a player of this caliber is trying to lock in a deal like this, right? It's just a matter of like risk tolerance that the player has, how much they think they're going to get on the market, like how confident they are in themselves, like how, how ready they are to risk it. Like, I imagine it depends on your personality, your agency, and I guess maybe the the financials of, of the team around. But I can't imagine any team in baseball, like like the Rays, clearly wanted to do a deal like this and, and did a deal like this with Wander Franco. Like every team in baseball, regardless of of how you, how much money you spend annually, is is benefited by these deals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like there's some risk that yeah, okay, the Mariners sign Evan White, and like I, I wasn't crazy about uh evan white as a prospect but all right like so what like (laughs) it's barely barely any money lost frankly in the bigger scheme of things for uh seattle so um yeah i i think a lot more teams should do like you said though it's uh you know dependent on the individual whether the player's willing to accept it is going to depend on terms because he's you know churio is giving up a lot of optionality uh, hmm. In terms of the club options that he's um, giving away, being not being able to become a free agent for 
probably like at least two or, or th- maybe three seasons. We'll, we'll see what it ends up. Yeah, it is. It is kind of up. in the ballpark of these like elite extension contracts in the last few years. You go, you have Julio Rodriguez, who signed a 12-year, $210 million extension in his age 21 season. Wander Franco signed an 11-year, $182 million extension in his age 21 season. Corbin Carroll, who we mentioned, eight years, $111 million, his age 22 season. Ronald Cooney Jr., seven years, $99 million in his age 22 season. And then Michael Harris, uh, eight years, $72 million in his age 22 season. Um, those are all extensions with less than one year of big league service time obviously Chorios, if this one gets signed it'll be it'll be none um but i do think it it kind of makes sense like putting putting Chorio in the sort of acuna harris carroll phylum of player uh it makes sense and he'll be signing his uh younger than all of these so uh, it, it seems to track with what we've had in the past i guess you, you do get a little bit of money if, if you have a little bit of of playing time and big league experience like clearly corbin carroll uh, his contract he was able to sign is is a little bit higher, but I, I mean, it was only a year ago where we were thinking of Jackson Chorio and Corbin Carroll as basically the same tier prospect and player. So it makes sense to me. Yeah, I don't think the D backs regret that one. No, <laughs> you think Corbin Carroll does? Uh, I don't know. It's hard to. <laughs> it's hard to regret that. I, I mean, if he could do it over now, like I don't know. He... You think you think if he could like opt out of that contract today, <laughs> you and think he say, would like, just give me the league minimum and like let's just like go through it, go through the arbitration. No, process. I I think he takes the contract, especially a guy like him who's had a couple injuries. Like I, I think he probably is like feels very good about that. Corman is also a very mm. smart guy, so he, he's not he's not a player I think is like gonna blow through all of his money. I can't imagine him yeah. doing that. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah, definitely. I I do agree. the The first hundred eleven million dollars in your bank account definitely is the most important. Yeah, I feel like is the <laughs> that's when your life that's that's when you really start to feel it. I think. Yeah, yeah. You can tell us more about from, how the hundred yeah. twelfth just really didn't from, do much for you, Ben. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So yeah, that's cool. Um, I mean, who who else? I can't imagine you would want to give a contract like this to a pitcher, but you feel like for all of our hitters, kind of at the top of our top 100, our, our Jackson Holidays, our Junior Camineros, our Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, like are, are these players all guys that you would be happy to maybe throw in Evan Carter into that as well, given what he did? Are, are those all players that you would be happy extending to similar deals? Uh, or is it or is it more case by case? Uh. Similar deals, yeah. I mean, so that's somewhat case by case, but similar, yeah, probably. Um, and and even deeper down the top one hundred to, yeah, you know, like more more in like the Evan White, Scott Kingery type of group. Like, obviously, you hope for a better outcome, but if it doesn't work out, uh, big deal. Like, it's you're you're really <laughs> not losing that much money on those contracts. You're not hampering much flexibility. In terms of your major league payroll for an organization if it doesn't work out and if it does it's it's a huge home run for mm-hmm. for the club like like i don't know like if you're the padres this is kind of crazy but like do you approach ethan salas who you just i was about to mention him actually it's it would be for, so funny to think of him signing in january for his international deal and then Less than a year later, signing an extension as a is he still seventeen? Is he eighteen? He's not. He's not. He's not eighteen until June first of next year. It's insane. Be like a twenty-four 
or like an older 25 high school prospect if he was Jesus. still if he was in the states i mean he's so like at that point you're talking about like you know kind of have to like start his clock maybe sooner than you but i don't know man the pot i could see the padres i could see the padres i wouldn't i wouldn't put the padres move. in the uh passive minor league development camp of teams i'll say that or yeah, definitely being definitely willing to do aggressive being willing to make unconventional decisions yeah no not at all i mean clearly not um yeah, Talis is interesting. I'm just kind of scanning down our list and, and thinking about it's harder for me to kind of wrap my head around sort of these like middle tier prospects. Like what would guys like Kobe Mayo or like Roman Anthony or Walker Jenkins like not really mid. I mean, this is still near the top of our list, but I mean, is this something you'd be exploring with with all of your prospects that you felt reasonably confident were going to be part of the team's future? Like how far down is like too far down uh, for you to even worry about something like this? It kind of all depends on the terms of the yeah. contract. I mean, like so, like for PCA for for the Cubs. I mean, especially the upper level minors guys, where they're not going to need all that much more time, yeah, to develop. I think it makes a lot of sense. Like, yeah, like obviously, you know, Sebastian Walcott with the Rangers. Like, all right, like that's <laughs> mm. probably a no, right? But um, certainly, if, if if a guy's reached the upper levels of the minor leagues, you got to start thinking about it at that point. Cause yeah, probably most guys will say no. Cause the money's not just not going to be that big. Yeah. Although like, again, like 25, $30 million guaranteed. Some guys will, you know, some guys will be willing to take it. And it's, you know, obviously it was a good decision for, you know, Jonathan Singleton and, and those guys. But, um, I, I think it depends on the agency too. Like they're, if you're with a bigger agency where you're part of a big roster port- of clients, yeah. Yeah. Portfolio of players, then they're that agent's probably going to be less receptive to taking that deal. Whereas if you're a smaller agent, a smaller agency, uh, or you're just, you know, a younger agent starting out and you have one player like that, um, you know, you're not really going to get paid until he gets to arbitration and then really till free agency. And I have to imagine and... you also, the entire time you're waiting for that point, you have to be afraid of, of other agencies poaching your client. I absolutely, exactly. I would be so stressed if I was an agent because it sounds like an absolutely brutal industry to be in. Oh, yeah. You, you have this player from, you know, the time he's maybe an underclass player in high school. Uh, you know, he signs out of the draft, maybe in high school, maybe, maybe you have to wait till college till he signs. And, and the commission on that is not going to be like that great for you. Yeah. Um, just for the player's amateur signing bonus with maybe a handful of exceptions, but um, really, yeah, you're waiting till arbitration and really free agency all those years to get paid. And if the player just all of a sudden says, nah, like, I'm. I'm done. I'm switching agents. Like he doesn't have to pay you. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're, you're just out of luck. So I, that's a big factor where, okay, we can talk about team friendly contracts and player friendly contracts. There are definitely agent friendly contracts where the agent is going to push the player to take that deal where they're, you know, getting, getting upfront guaranteed money, maybe leaving more upside on the table, but for the agent, yeah, you're, you are locking in that, commission you don't mm-hmm. have to worry about your 
player leaving for somebody else and you're left getting nothing at the end of it. Whereas if you're a bigger agency and you have a whole bunch of players, yeah, like you're, you're more willing to say, all right, fine. Maybe, maybe we'll lose this guy to another agency. But uh, if we do, that's fine. We have a whole big roster of clients and it's, it's better for us to, you know, be more hardline in our negotiations with these clubs and be more willing to take these guys to free agency. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't don't envy being in those shoes at all. Doesn't sound very fun to me. All right. <laughs> <laughs> not uh, not not switching over to the the agency side anytime. No, soon. no, I don't think so. You know, uh, as much as as fun as Hudson made it sound on our podcast when he was talking about it, I don't I don't think that's for me. I don't think I could. I don't think I could live that life, Ben. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's a different lifestyle. <laughs> All right. Well, next, you want to talk through our top 100 draft update? Yeah. Big, uh, big 2024 draft top 100 rankings on the site now. Yeah, we do. We've got an update. Um, it's, it's our first big update, really factoring in all of the summer valuation period, a lot of the fall, really most of the fall valuation period. Um, so there are lots of movers, lots of changes on the board, lots of guys jumping up, some guys moving down the list. Um, it still feels like a, a fairly f- muddled group this year. I think it's maybe the, I'm uh, still down year is what it seems like. Um, but no, there's a lot of movement. Maybe Caleb Bonimer is the biggest individual mover on this list. A high school shortstop out of Michigan. He's got a chance to be the highest drafted prep from Michigan since Derek Jeter all the way back in 1992. He was, he was taken sixth overall. I think there's only one Michigan player this century to be drafted in the first round, pitcher or hitter. Um, so it's not really a hotbed talent, but Caleb Bonimer is shooting up the board given what he showed this summer. Um, we've got players like Seaver King, who I think they were already probably in a pretty good spot entering the summer, but just consistently been up arrow feedback for him. That's the Wake Forest shortstop and outfielder uh, going from Division Two player at Wingate, who no one really heard about, to potentially a top 10 pick and now wake forest is sitting here with five players in our top 35 they've never had a player drafted or they've never had a hitter drafted inside the top 10 picks uh, and we've got them sitting here with nick kurtz number one on the board and Seaver king number eight so they've got a chance to uh to solidly break that streak with with two players in one draft class but there's a ton of movement we've got um, new reports on all the players added uh so Definitely check that out, and, and I also have notes on on some of the more notable risers as well. We can get into on this podcast, um, or you guys can check it out online as you're listening. But yeah, it was it was nice to finally get this one done. I think it was long overdue to get an updated board. Yeah, what's it? Uh, I mean, it, it sounds like it's still pretty pretty open at the top right now. Like, there's not that mm-hmm. premium position, premium hitter combination right yeah. now out there. Yeah, I don't think so. You don't really have that. I mean, I, I kind of view the whole top 10 as really one one tier. It's it's entirely college as well, which is maybe another notable factor about this draft class. We, we've said it a lot, but we don't really have a Max Clark or a Walker Jenkins type um, that's up in there. And I think you could make a case for, for guys like Seaver King or for Vance Honeycutt, Mike Sirota to be the number one guy if you want in up the middle athletic profile. 
You could make a case for the Tommy Whites and the Brayden Montgomery's and the Jack Caglione's of the world if you really just want impact and power. You don't mind the the defensive profile quite as much. And then even our top three players on the board who probably have the most like balanced mix of a profile are, are all first base and second base types. Nick Kurtz at Wake Forest, who I mentioned, J.J. Weatherholt at West Virginia, who I imagine Weatherholt is, is number one on a number of scouts boards, just getting his, given his pure hitting ability and, and what he showed this summer with Team USA. And then Travis Bazana, who who also had a really good spring with Oregon State, was the MVP in the Cape Cod League. Like it, It's fairly wide open to me. There's no Dylan Cruz. There's no consensus top player on the board. We don't even really have... I mean, maybe Mike Sirota, you could say, is that sort of up the middle profile who has all the tools. But I, I think his tool set is is in a different league compared to Dylan Cruz, and, and certainly playing in the in the conference he's playing in at Northeastern is a little bit different than putting up the numbers that that Cruz put up in the SEC. So I just think we don't really have that top player right now. Certainly, it's not to say we we won't at the end of the day. I think next spring is going to be hugely important. Um, for all these players, um, it's wide open. Like if, if someone comes out strong, has a really good off season, uh, just has phenomenal performance, the tools take a jump. Like if Seaver King comes out and is the best hitter in college baseball and he's added power and he's playing plus defense in, in center field, maybe he's that, that type. Maybe a player like Charlie Condon at Georgia just continues to mash and uh, people feel better about his athleticism. He's played a number of positions, some third base, some outfield, um, so uh, yeah, I do think it's wide open. Uh, I think a lot of questions will need to be answered next spring, um, to, to have some sort of conviction in the order that we're going with and conviction in just starting pitching profiles on the college side. Uh, I think the good news is for the, for the high school side is like, it's similarly muddled. We don't have a clear pecking order for the top pitchers. There's a lot of players with similar stuff, similar profiles, um, with those high school pitchers, at least, I think it's a little bit easier to take jumps in the spring because your competition really doesn't matter as much as the, the pure stuff you're showing your, your pitchability, your body, um, for the high school hitters, it's a little harder maybe to move up and down boards. Cause the performance is really going to just depend on the competition level and, and more so your tool set. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of moving parts on the board. I expect when we have an update in January, February, it'll be fairly static and it'll be more of just an expansion to top 200. But when the season starts, uh, it's going to be wide open and I expect players to be moving all over the place because it just really doesn't feel like uh, a settled class at this point, which again, it's November. Maybe that's the case every year, but it particularly feels all over the place for this 24 draft class. Sounds like a good year to be able to trade draft picks. Yeah, that was actually brought up. I think Jeff, me and Jeff were talking about something and, and he was like, yeah, this sounds like a year that I would want to trade my first round pick and just acquire more picks further down the board. And I think that would be awesome. Like I can't imagine there are teams that think they're ahead of the game on a scouting, like an evaluation front. Maybe it's player development and scouting as well. You're like, you know what? Like we don't really love the top end. We don't feel like there's a clear tier break with the top of this draft class. Let's trade out of our pick, add more, add more picks because we feel like we can identify players better. Uh, like a team like the Dodgers, who's consistently drafting well at the back of the first round and behind the first round, like, Imagine them trading their top pick, getting like multiple picks in the top 100. It would be fun to watch for sure. Uh, I wonder if that's going to ever come because baseball is not afraid to, to change the rules. There have been a lot of changes to the draft. Uh, I do think some 
some excuse about parody uh, would maybe be a reason why they wouldn't want to. But you could have all sorts of strategic reasons why you'd want to trade picks in general, and maybe especially with this draft class. Yeah, I'm I'm all for freedom. So <laughs> I would love to <laughs> big freedom fan, Ben Ben Badler. Yeah, I, I just don't. I mean, if you want to say you can't trade picks into a cert like you can't trade your 2026 draft picks yet like okay fine you know put some guardrails on i suppose but for the most part i think teams should have the freedom you don't think it should be like um people's dynasty fantasy leagues where they completely trade all their future picks and are in a perpetual rebuild you don't think that should be allowed at the the majors i mean i think if you're gonna make bad decisions as an organization then you should pay the price for making those bad decisions and if you make good decisions you should get rewarded <laughs> for making good decisions so I, I i would be all in favor of being able to trade picks for not just not just the current years or the mm. upcoming years draft but the future trade for for the future too like hey we want to hey we have a bad farm system uh, or this you know we're just trying to make a trade and like we'd rather trade future draft picks or the team that we're trading with doesn't like the prospects we have <laughs> in our farm system. We'd, we'd rather, they would rather acquire future draft picks and they can pick their own players yeah. from a future draft. I, I think that would be, it would, it would give a lot more freedom and a lot more flexibility to maneuver in those trades. And it would, I think it would make the draft more fun, more interesting. Not that I think it's going to move the needle I wonder how many teams in this scenario would just like regularly punt on drafting and instead try and aggressively acquire um, just prospects, either like proven prospects or major league value now. Like if that would be a strategy that anyone, I I think there would be a lot of hesitancy to do that for any team, but maybe I'm wrong. Or how much teams would try to trade up for a premium pick versus trade down to get multiple picks and imagine being a scouting director of a team that like like a GM I don't know a GM who like just doesn't really care too much about prospects and wants to win now like desperately needs to win now and you're the scouting director and it's like yeah well we traded all of your top three your your top three round picks this year you lost your first round pick next year like i can just imagine scouting director sitting there being so pissed they have less ammunition to work with in any given year Uh, well that happens in the international market to a to an extent when you're signing free agents who got the qualified offer and then it's like oh we have a little bit you know have a million dollars less money than we (laughs) than we thought um but i mean it would change just the way you scout too like how many how many teams really were going in to see max clark this spring uh like i i know some scouts who some area scouts were like yeah i saw him like once because mm-hmm. we knew we had no chance to get him but now it's like hey maybe we could trade up to get yep. that you know third overall pick in the draft and we gotta stay on this guy so mm-hmm. it would it would change the way you would have to operate yeah no it really would yeah because i imagine pretty quickly like within, I mean, every team probably went and saw those top guys once just to make sure they like had an updated report. But yeah, pretty quickly you can co- sort of figure out if you're picking in the 20s, you don't really need to be watching Walker Jenkins and Max Clark too much during the spring. So just the amount of time you have, it's better to spend that time elsewhere prioritizing players that you can realistically have a chance to get. Like there are so many players these area scouts have to get through that it just makes sense. But you're right, if you can trade, um, if you can trade multiple picks, move up, everyone theoretically would be available. And I agree with you. Like, I think it 
would be more interesting from a fan perspective. I think the team should be allowed as much freedom as you can possibly give them to operate and, and make smart decisions and improve their club or, or make poor ones and, and have to suffer the consequences of that too. But I mean, I, I think I've fully gotten past my fear of pick trading just because it complicates my life and I've, I've fully bought into your, your uh, future dystopia here, Ben. It, it just uh, it ruins your mock drafts. That's the... Oh, God. Well, it's probably good to just completely just punt with the mock drafts and say, yeah, we're, if we get a couple of players, we'll, we'll be happy. But yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what the process would be with mock drafts in that scenario. Like, imagine like five teams trading. Like, things already get blown up immediately if one surprising player gets taken. Um, I can't imagine the ramifications for, for various trades on draft day. Well, if they go to an international draft, it, you know, they would have to come up with another proposal, obviously. But if they do, I, you would see draft picks being allowed to be traded because I think most likely it would be hard slotted. And if you hard slot the draft, then you, you, I think the teams would have the freedom to say, hey, do you, we don't want to pay this. We don't want to pay somebody at the number 10 overall pick three million dollars or whatever it's going to be <laughs> so we have the freedom to trade the pick to somebody else who does want to take somebody here and pay that hard slot value do yeah do you think that pick trading would necessitate hard slotting or do you think you could implement pick trading with the domestic draft without doing that because i really think the hard slotting makes the high school college dynamic of the baseball draft really tough to pull off i don't see why you would need to hard slot it yeah. i mean it, you know What's you, the you reason just, the international draft would have to be hard slot? Just because of the amount of money that MLB wants? Why, why, let's throw away the, that. Well, the reason would be just because of how the differences between the states, uh, the state, the draft here domestically versus internationally. So, all right, you, you set up a, a flexible bonus slotting system the way we have in the draft now. You put that internationally into an international draft. The Oakland A's are going to have the fifth overall pick, and it's going to be a, you know, let's say a, a, a recommended slot value, or the slot value is going to be five million dollars, right? Mm. Uh, what what do you, what do you think is going to happen when the A's draft some kid out of, you know, Oswa in the Dominican Republic, or you know some, you know some small town in Venezuela, and they're the I think like the, you know the international director is going to be like okay yeah like let's take him and let's pay him, but the owner no they wouldn't the the owner is going to say why are we paying this guy five million dollars no. you we think have... the you think the international director would be like let's just pay him slot I don't think I think that would stop as soon as you had if if you had an international draft with a slotting system similar to domestic like none of the scouting directors on the amateur side domestically are like, oh, I really want to pay this guy slot. Every single one of them wants to cut a deal so they have more money to operate with later. You don't you don't think that would just happen on the international front too? Well, no, I, I think that what would happen is the owner owner and GM would say, yeah, exactly. Why are we paying this guy? Why would we pay this guy $5 million? He's, he has no leverage. He has, he's not going to college next year. He can only negotiate with us with one team. So his options so, are to his yeah, I guess I guess my my question for you with this is what happens to a player in the international draft system if they don't sign? Because you're right, if if the players just have no leverage and all the teams know it, 
then that doesn't quite work to where like a high school kid who's committed to LSU can just say, all right, if you don't pay me what I want, I'm just going to college. I'll be back in a few years in this system. I mean, this is what you're basically in a scenario where your whole draft is with the leverage that college seniors have, essentially. Is that what, what it would be? Yeah, it would basically be you either sign or you go back into the next year's draft and then you repeat the whole process again. I so wonder if, these- if I wonder if there would be a way where if you if you draft the player and you don't come up with a deal, if there's a way to put those players into a pool where then everyone can sign them for a certain amount. So your your leverage is not killed entirely, but you're still incentivized like both both sides would still be incentivized to come to a deal. Would that help at all? I'm just thinking as we talk here. Well, I think the leverage for the player comes in with the with the hard slot. Where yeah. okay in the states maybe you have you know a high school player has more leverage so he can go yeah. to college etc. Uh, but in you know a kid out of the sixteen seventeen year old kid from the Dominican Republic can't do that so like yeah, I do like hard slotting because it forces teams to draft in order of talent and I, I think that is just easier it's more accessible to people who are not super diehard draft fans. Uh, and I would like to see what a draft board would look like in that capacity. But at least on the domestic front, I wonder how how that would change the high school. Because obviously, like for high school players, maybe you just get to a certain point on the board where like you, you clearly know the money's not here. It's hard slotting. And so you have to get your high school players earlier, and then they're just not coming off the board. It would be very weird to see that happen. I'm so ingrained into the system we currently have. Yeah. So, I mean, with, with international players, it's like, all right, the slot is $2 million. You're, if, you know, if you choose to sign, you're getting $2 million, not the team goes to you and says, yeah, here's $500,000. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, wait another year. Hope, this, <laughs> hope the same scenario. Yeah. Doesn't and you're saying in the hard slotting scenario, the A's are going to be like, I don't want to spend this money on anyone in this class for $5 million, so what am I doing with this pick? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously like pointing out the cheapest organization of course, in baseball. Rightfully but, so. but this is going to be the same with probably 30 or, or close to 30 organizations who would be, at least their ownership would be thinking the same thing. Why? Why? Why are we doing? Why? Why would we pay the full slot? You think John Middleton's player? thinking that? Well, for <laughs> I think everybody would be thinking the same thing of like, mm. why? Why would we do this other than you know maybe bad optics? But like, if everybody else is doing the same thing, so yeah. if you hard slot it, then the idea is like, okay, this player is guaranteed the money. Obviously, physical mm. and drug tests and all that stuff comes in too. But yeah. Um, Man, what a what a nightmare the uh, the acquisition market is for baseball. <laughs> With, uh, I mean, going back to the twenty four draft though. So Chase Burns, who was at Tennessee last year, mm. transferred to Wake Forest, uh, top pitcher in this class. Is he? I mean, I I guess what prevents him from being maybe higher up the board, or or how does he compare to, you know, Chase Dolander? from a year ago who went top 10 to the Rockies mm-hmm. or Rhett Louder. Um, I guess obviously some school similarities there with, <laughs> uh, with both of them, uh, who was another top 10 pick overall last year with the, the Reds. Yeah. So I, I don't think that, I mean, you could, I guess you could push him higher up the board if you wanted to. I think I wouldn't really compare him to Chase Dolander. I don't think there's any pitcher in this class, Burns or otherwise, who, who kind of is locked into this, like, oh, he's clearly the top pitching prospect in the class, like we had talked about Dolander last year around this time. I think Dolander at the same time was a 
a much uh, more advanced pitching prospect, both in terms of command, uh, a deeper pitch mix, uh, a better delivery. Obviously, Trace Dillinger backed up a little bit um, in his his draft season, his junior year, uh, but he still went in the top 10 uh, right in range where we have Burns on the board now. I think Burns and a number of players uh, on the college side in this class have really electric, pure stuff. Like Burns has a fastball that's routinely in the mid to upper 90s. He's been up to 100 miles per hour before. He has a really vicious slider that's also in the upper 80s. will touch 90. Um, that's maybe one of the better breaking balls in the class. Uh, but he does have some starter reliever questions. I think the reason Burns is above Brody Brecht, who we previously had in the top spot, who similarly has really nasty fastball slider combination and reliever questions is just Burns has thrown more strikes and he has pitched in a starter role in the past and, and done well in that capacity. I think both of these players like Burns, there are real questions about the delivery and the arm action. It's pretty long. That can be a question. He also moved into a reliever role last spring with Tennessee. Maybe that's one of the reasons he transferred out of the program. He wants to start. He wants to to really showcase that he can start at the next level. But really, every single college pitcher in this class has significant question marks, um, not to the degree that, that really any of the top pitchers last excuse me last year had. Um, but but the stuff you could argue is better than both Rhett Lauder and Chase Dolander from a year ago. I think Paul Skeen still has a pretty pretty solid uh, pretty solid stuff, and I'd, I'd probably still take. Paul Skeen's stuff compared to Chase Burns but um yeah it's just it's just you don't have a lot of very confident well-rounded starter profiles at the college level it's it's a lot of guys who need to throw more strikes or need to establish themselves in a starting role for a full spring and so because of that it wouldn't shock me if the order was a lot different next spring once we see who actually goes out and performs but I mean really the entire Wake Forest rotation could be first rounders um, that's how good it is with, with Burns, with Josh Hartle, and with, I assume Michael Massey is going to be moving into a starting role, but he was a reliever last year and would have some of the same questions I was talking about with Burns. Yeah, and then they have Nick Kurtz and Seaver King in their lineup, so they yeah. seem to be doing Yeah, pretty right. decent. I really yeah. wonder, like, I mean, a year ago, two years ago, we would not have thought of Wake Forest as a powerhouse in college baseball, but uh, they're doing a great job recruiting. They're clearly doing a good job in the portal. They're doing a nice job developing. They obviously have a great reputation for for what they do with pitchers with their lab. It's funny that they're kind of this the program that is defined by pitching, and they they are in a park that is notoriously homer friendly. Um, but yeah, I wonder if we're going to just be thinking about them in like the the sort of Vanderbilt, Florida, LSU sort of mold in college baseball, like. Peter Flaherty, I was talking to him. He he thinks that like Wake is is here to stay. Like it's not just a blip on the radar. Um, and so that's I mean that's pretty impressive for for a team that I, I don't know that a few years ago you would have considered them a top three team in their own state. And here they are with the most talented team in college baseball. Yeah, bringing in these big transfers, and then I'm looking at their recruits. You know, we'll see how many of them they get to campus but just looking ahead to next year i mean they're the 24 high school class you have like ryan sloan chris lavonis a couple big right-handed pitchers and chris lavonis who i I probably think we don't have ranked high enough just given some some recent calls i've had about him like he he probably should be up on this top 100 he was a guy who just missed the list but Mm. talk to the guy who did the rankings (laughs) (laughs) exactly um but that's i mean for 24 i mean for 2025 they have a right-handed pitcher josh hammonds who 
I mean, him, Seth Hernandez, two best, or, or Marcos Paz, I should say, two committed to LSU, but like, you know, the three two best. Two of the three? That's insane. Well, no, sorry. Like, th- those are the three best high school pitchers in the 25 class. They have Josh Hammonds. Mm. Um, they have Mar- Marcelo Harsh, uh, another big projectable right-handed pitcher, fastball up to 93, six foot four, really good slider. Um, Grant Nicholson, Jordan Serrano, uh, all in our top 100. Uh, Nicholson's right-handed pitcher. Serrano's a pretty athletic, toolsy outfielder. And then I just feel like uh, every time I see like this like sleeper arm who I kind of like, uh, <laughs> I'm like, oh, where's this guy? Oh, Wake Forest. Damn, like they're <laughs> they they're they definitely got uh, some good recruiting classes ahead too. Yeah, well, you know, the king of that is is LSU. They've got eight players well, committed yeah. <laughs> committed on the top 100. I think they're uh, maybe a, a separate beast. They, they have Connor Griffin, who's ranked number 11. They have Cater and Bide, number 19. Number 21, Ken Caminiti. Number 31, Derek Curiel, who maybe is more of a risk to get to campus than anyone would have thought two years ago, a year ago. Um, big right-handers like William Schmidt, Kaysen Evans, Mikey Ryan, who's a shortstop who I really like the hit tool, and then a massive left-hander in Boston Bateman. Like, there's no shortage of talent that's getting to campus at LSU. It's just a question of like which of these guys are going to get drafted too soon um, to make it there. But regardless, they're going to be getting more impact, more impact uh, incoming players a year from now. Yeah, it's not going to not going to slow down the year. I mean, they just got Dean Moss, 2025 <laughs> outfielder, Marcos Paz. Who I just mentioned the pitcher out of mm. Texas and Quentin Young, who's the nephew of uh, Delman and uh, Dimitri Young, who's enormous some of the best power in the class all all in our top 20 for 2025 so um ben who even more beyond that who would you take in this class number one overall right now for because i think that it's like we talked high school players no 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 just overall like if you have the first pick who are you taking right now just based on your information on these guys i know you spend more of your time on the high schools but for for 24 for 24 yeah do any of the profiles appeal to you more than others? Like it is a group of largely less appealing than, than you would hope for. But um, I, I, think, I think it'll be interesting to like compare and contrast the real candidates right now for number one at some point in the future. And I'm curious if you, if you really like one of these guys. I I think it's, pr- it's probably going to be a year. Like if it was, you know, if the draft was tomorrow, I'd probably be trying to cut a deal with one of these guys Yeah, at the top. Cause there isn't that Adley Rushman type guy. But mm-hmm. I'd probably lean toward JJ Weatherholt yeah. right now. Um, I think I just I really like the he's the, he's five ten. Everyone else is six foot or taller, so I figured that's where you were going. Well, yeah, Travis Pizzan <laughs> is smaller than him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just really like the left handed hitting ability, um, athletic. There's power there. Um, you know, when healthy, sounds like he can run pretty well too. So mm-hmm. uh, offensive track record obviously is. <laughs> pretty outstanding too uh, you know nick hurts i'd be tempted to go that way i think weatherholt's gonna have obviously more positional value i, I really like nick hurts though so i could see going that route but I, i'd probably lean toward weatherholt just a lot of conviction right now in his mm. hitting ability and some more more defensive upside with him whereas nick hurts is pretty much first base only yeah i, I think i'm pretty much in agreement I like them both quite a bit. Um, I would 
obviously like if you're in the room you you try and see what the signability is for all these guys and if like if if whether hope for whatever reason would take way less than curse then yeah i'd be thrilled but yeah i'm with you i mean you got to feel pretty good about both the, the hitting ability of Kurtz and Weatherholt. Um, I guess maybe whether or not you think the power, like how much of a gap in the power is there really? Because Weatherholt has surprisingly like heavy hands and a heavy barrel through the zone. Like I was, I was kind of shocked with how quickly the ball comes off his barrel and the impact he's able to generate. Um, he's not a small guy, but anyways, I mean he's shorter, but he's he's filled out. He's um, yeah, he he is really strong, and and I haven't even seen the best version of him because I didn't get to see him run, but. Uh, I'll be really excited to watch him next spring. Yeah, I don't I don't think I would love taking a shot on like maybe higher upside but riskier hit tools like a a Jack Caglione or a Vance Honeycutt or a Tommy White. Like I would I would feel safer with just the guys that I feel better about their pure hitting ability. But I said the same about Austin Martin too and here we are. Yeah, how about on the high school side? What was the I would grouping take... at the top for you? yeah so i think there's sort those guys out yeah so the way we ordered them right now um we have connor griffin still in the top spot um he, he dropped out of the top 10 but i think it was only a few places um so he's at 11 we have pj morlando number 12 um and griffin is a an outfielder a shortstop and a right-hander out of mississippi pj morlando is a, a first baseman and an outfielder out of south carolina and then the bigger biggest riser on our board is, is caleb bonimer um who we had mentioned shortstop out of out of michigan they're all in that 11 to 13 range i think depending on the scout or the team that you talk to you could get those three in all three different orders um there may be some other high school players that are kind of in that mix like it wouldn't shock me if if people had a cater and b day in that mix as well but it seems like at least at this point those guys are at the top of the class and i really think it depends on like your specific philosophy and preferences i personally would probably go with morlando even though he's the oldest and he probably has the most limited defensive profile i just feel like of the high school class i am really only convicted in his hitting ability and power all the other ones i have have more questions and so Mm -hmm. i'd just be like okay let me take the guy who i know is going to hit um like i I think back to a few years ago like jared kelnick probably didn't have him ranked as high as i should have um just given his his pure hitting ability like yeah he's a it might be a, a first baseman but the first baseman who go this high, like you've got to feel good about their hitting ability. And I feel good about Orlando's. I think he's actually a pretty solid athlete um, at first base. Like I think he's a better athlete than Tristan Cassis was at the same time. Um, I'd maybe have to go back and look at that, but I love his swing. I love his approach. I think he's got a ton of raw power. Uh, So while it's not typically the profile that I'm loving at the top of the draft, I just don't think you have a lot of those profiles that I want to take this year's class. So I, I just take the guy that's really hit everywhere he's been. What about you? Um, well, I'm curious on, on Morlando. So how would you compare, I don't know if you've thought about it all, but like him versus Ralphie Velasquez, who yeah. was the guardians first round pick 23rd overall last year or this year, this past draft, I should say, <laughs> um, out of high school. They're, they're basically, I think they're just about the same age because Ralphie was young for the class. Morlando's older for the class. Mm. Uh, they're both. I mean, Velasquez is catcher slash. I think pretty high risk of ending up at first base. Morlando's first base or you know corner outfield in pro ball. Two really advanced left-handed hitters for their age. Like to me, I, I think their value is. You're not comparable. making me like this class more, Ben. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. I, I mean, that's like, yeah, like first round pick who signed for, you know, a few million dollars. Like, <laughs> like the, uh, I, I could see, I could see, like, I, I think those guys are in a comparable neighborhood just in terms of. I like Morlando's swing and body better. Uh, I, I like, I like Ralphie's hitting ability pretty well. I would hope you have more impact with Orlando, and I would I guess want to look back and see like what sort of power I would think is coming with Ralphie. Um, but I would hope just given the, the projectability of the frame, I mean, he's, he's not like a super projectable player in Orlando. He's fairly filled out and strong now, but I never remember, and I could be wrong. I never remember Ralphie showing as much raw power. So, so hopefully you get like a little bit more impact and upside offensively with Orlando, and it's weird to think of him as being like I wonder if he can play outfield because if he can play outfield at the next level that changes a lot like I saw him stand in the outfield a little bit I didn't see him really get challenged too much there I know a lot of people just think he's a first baseman so thinking about them defensively is weird too because if Ralphie can stick at catcher you basically go from like the most valuable defensive position on the spectrum to the least if you if you move to first so it yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I, think of, more, I think Orlando can play the outfield, it, but it'd be a corner, and I think he's a, just a really good defender at uh, first base, for, mm-hmm. especially for his age. So probably that sticks out. Yeah, with him. So you're basically saying last year you'd have taken PJ Orlando in like the 20s of that class. That that kind of tracks, to be honest, with given the strength of this group. Yeah, uh, yeah, somewhere in that range. I mean, we had like a whole glut of players from like the 20 to 40 range um last year who i really liked who probably mm-hmm. all are in that same value band together i mean i want to like caleb bonhammer a lot i saw him perform in person maybe more than any player in the high school class it's like it's bonhammer it's like caldwell dante dante nori and kate aaron Bide. but i his swing does give me a little bit of pause it is not the most fluid swing you'll ever see there is some stiffness there um, I know he wasn't great with USA early in the summer. I think that's when you saw him not great. PDP, yeah. Yeah, PDP League. So, I mean, in terms of tool set and profile, he's more like that typical player that I tend to be drawn towards. Uh, but I have just enough pause about like my conviction in his hitting ability that I would maybe feel safer with Orlando. Because, I, I mean, what are the questions about Orlando's offensive game? I don't really have any. I mean, the, the swing is how he sets up is a little unique, but I don't have problems with it. Like he's balanced. He's on time. He generates force without much of a stride. Like I think the swing decisions are strong. Like I just don't have, I don't have any questions really with him offensively. Whereas with Griffin and with Bonimer, there are some that, that add a little risk for me, but where would you go? You haven't answered yet. I don't know, man. I mean, again, I, I think like you, it's pretty wide. Oh, but there's, there's not one player on the high school side where I feel like if you said this guy is, you have to pick one player who's going to be a guaranteed first round pick. Yeah. I, I don't, I probably point to Connor Griffin just because of the tools, tools and athleticism and, and age. Yeah. Yeah. He's a little bit on the younger side. He reclassed like he was older for a 2025. Now he's not like super, super young. Like he'll be 18 on draft day, but um, but he is, you know, certainly, I mean, he's about a year younger. I think it's like 11 months compared to more Orlando or, or some of the, um, you know, other players in yes. that class. Yeah. He'll but, be 18.2 on draft day. Morlando is 19.2. Yeah. So there's, you know, I don't, I don't think he's the same level of pure hitter as, 
more Orlando and, and the level of performance was not as high as Caleb Bonimer this summer, but uh, you're talking about somebody who, I mean, I know top, people talk about him as the outfield. I don't know. I, I've seen him at shortstop look pretty good for, especially for somebody who's six foot four, 210 pounds. He has a 70 arm. He's a 70 runner. He's got a lot of bat speed, uh, big power potential. I talked to Scott there. recently who even likes him better on the mound. Have you, have you ever considered, I mean, most people I think like him better as an offensive prospect, just because of all those tools you're talking about, but how much thought would you give to him pitching? I mean, I think if he, if he focused just on pitching, he could probably throw a hundred miles an hour one day. <laughs> um, it's been more low nineties when he's on the mounds. Um, I, I'd certainly, I'd certainly put him first as a position player. And I would too. Yeah. If, if it doesn't work out for some reason, then yeah, pitching still a fallback option because he has an absolute cannon, but, um, but I, I would certainly run him out first as either a, a shortstop or an outfielder. And he could, you know, maybe he's able to stay at shortstop. Maybe he goes to third base. Uh, he certainly has a speed right now for center field, just depending on how he grows and then maybe who his future teammates are. Maybe he ends up in a corner. So, mm. uh, but there's, there, I don't, I don't think there's anybody, maybe like Andre Madugno, uh, who's at IMG Academy. I don't, I don't think there's anybody else who can really match just the the raw tools and athleticism that Griffin has. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who who else I'd put in that category in terms of just raw tools for the high school side. I mean, in terms of power and speed, Bonimer is, is up. I mean, he's not quite as fast, um, but I think the the raw or power the would be yeah, yeah, or the arm. So yeah, yeah I mean, there's I'm there's other guys who have that kind of power, like Kate Aaron Beatty's power, and I guess certainly his arm strength, <laughs> yeah, uh, as well, but. Um, also also some you know hit risk and then the obvious just catcher high school catcher risk although mm -hmm. defensively he uh is pretty exemplary i think in terms of his ability to <laughs> certainly catch and throw how do you view him compared to blake mitchell from a year ago overall as a prospect because i'm really curious to see where aaron Beatty goes in this class he's obviously a right-handed hitting high school catcher which is not not the profile that everyone wants, um, but I do think his tools are are pretty exciting. His performance last summer was really good at the right spots for a lot of upper level evaluators. Um, but he also has um, some decent competition on the college catching demographic, and and we do think it's going to be a college heavy draft at this point. So I'm really curious to see where that profile falls. I guess if he's willing to take a deal like Blake Mitchell did a year ago, that could complicate things, but. I always go back back and forth in my mind with how I view those two uh, compared to each other. And I'm, I don't really know that I have like a, a solid answer in which one I would take. Uh, I mean, defensively and Blake Mitchell had a good arm too, but Kate Aaron Beatty, the way he, the way he's able to control the running game, it's, I'm like racking my brain to think of somebody at that age who, was as good as him because it's it's at least a 70 arm and then yeah. the transfer the footwork the exchange is so quick it, it's it's right up there with the best catchers in i in think the adonis i think adonis guzman maybe had an arm 
pure arm strength that was similar, but I think Cade does a lot of other things better than him at the same age. Yeah. He, I'm trying oh, to think of other big arms. Like Will Banfield had a really big arm. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are other guys who have, you know, I've seen with plus-plus arms behind the plate, but the he's able, like his pop times are pretty regularly under 1-9, like under 1-8 sometimes. Like I am yeah. got it on video and I'm like checking it 10 times because I'm like, <laughs> there's no way he's making, there's, there's no way that's correct, but it is like 172 on a throw this summer. I mean, backhand, picking a ball in the dirt, making a clean throw to second base, like one nine. I mean, it's, it's crazy to, to see. I'm like, I think of like Antonio Gomez who signs with the Yankees a few years back, who had a, a great arm, great transfer and release too. Um, but there's just not many guys you see like that. And then he's hitting balls to like the top of the batter's eye in carry. And in... The, the separator for his raw power compared to most in this class too is like he will go the other way. And that is rare to see for a high school player to hit the ball as far as he does to the opposite field, both yeah. in BP and, and in game. That the, that really stood out to me. The the swing path, I mean, there's, there's it's going to be power over hit. It's going to come with some swing and miss. So uh, that's a risk. And obviously the bat is even as a catcher to me, like no matter how good defensively you are, like you still have to hit to a certain degree. So like the bat still does matter, but uh, it's definitely going to be, a, I think a power overhit profile with him. So um, I think, yeah, arm strength and, and power are, are both ahead of where Mitchell was. Uh, Mitchell had, I think some, bat risk too but uh, i think you could argue that mitchell as a as a hitter maybe ahead of aaron Beatty, but aaron Beatty's mm. certainly got him on raw power and the arm strength exchange mechanics defensively mm. uh, are just ridiculous for that, <laughs> for that age yeah no it is uh, it is interesting thinking through them any players that stood out to you on this list or do you want to move on to some pro talk uh, I'm curious about the the arms you liked because especially the high school arms because it seems like there's not like there's maybe not a noble Meyer this yeah. year but there's a whole bunch of guys where it's like you know maybe one of them is ranked 37 on the list or another is like off the list <clears> and <throat> there's not even that much yeah separation. I talked I talked with so many scouts about this specifically and just how how similar all these high school pitchers were. And no one seemed very confident, like who the the top guy was, and like I do think like a sneaky underrated element of this draft class is just the depth of arms overall, but especially on the high school side. Like there are a lot of pitchers with loud stuff. There are a lot of pitchers who who can pitch. There are a lot of projectable bodies, um, but there's really just no no real clear separation. So hopefully that comes next spring. I mean, the pitcher that I like. I'm maybe most excited about there. There are a couple of them that I really like a lot, but I, I keep coming back to Bryce Rayner. I really want him to pitch next spring. His delivery, the way it looks on the mound, six foot four, 195, great pitcher's frame, super easy velocity. He really spins the breaking ball, the control and short stints when I saw it was good. Um, so I like him quite a bit. Um, William Schmidt and Joey Oki, they have both shown really impressive, pure stuff. 
and strikes for me at times. Like there's like going down the list, there are some like pitchability guys like like David Shields, a left-handed pitcher out of Pennsylvania who's committed to Miami. I loved watching him pitch. He carved uh, mm-hmm. when I was watching him. Uh, I think he could take a jump in the spring if he adds some more strength. Um, Ethan Scheifelbein, a left-handed pitcher in California who's committed to UCLA. He pitched really well this summer. Uh, really low effort, really easy. Not the biggest fastball in the world, but again, if he's a guy who adds strength, he could jump up the board here. Um, just kind of scanning down this list, like I really don't have a single arm that that I like more than any other. It's just there's a lot to like about a number of these arms, and it's going to come down to, unfortunately, it's going to come down to like who prices themselves out and who takes steps forward next spring. Like, are we going to get a guy who gets into the the Noble Meyer Thomas White realm? I mean, maybe you could say that that Cam Caminiti is not too far off uh, from that range now, depending on how much you like him. But I still have some question marks about like feel for spin for that one or just consistency of the breaking ball. But it it certainly looks really easy. The fastball is an overpowering pitch. Um, he's shown a good changeup. He's exceptionally young for the class as a, a former 2025 uh, prospect. So I imagine just the like ease of his operation, the body, the handedness with Caminiti will really endear him to a lot of scouts. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's basically like ask me in six months and maybe I'll have a better answer for you. But is there one for you that you think is like more exciting? Uh, I'm with you on William Schmidt. I think he's a, you know, mm. right-handed pitcher out of Louisiana, six, three, he spins the ball so well. Yeah. He, he has a hammer curveball, 3000 RPM type, uh, breaking ball with him fastball up to 95. I think we'll see some more velocity in the tank with him if he comes out in the spring and he's touching you know 97 98 mm-hmm. would not surprise me and and we already have him ranked pretty high and there's probably a certain ceiling for how high high mm-hmm. school uh right-handed pitcher is gonna go but he's somebody who i could see taking another jump in the yeah. spring him like levi sterling another one right-handed pitcher out of mm-hmm. california really young for the class uh, just like a lot of good starter traits with him athletic throws a lot of strikes like not the same level of power mm-hmm. to his stuff right now but again like he just turned 17 a couple months ago so um so he is younger but um i think i think it was up to like 93 maybe 94 um but really good feel for his off-speed stuff and throwing a lot of strikes good delivery athletic mm-hmm. a lot of the a lot of the boxes that you're looking to check as a as a club looking at pitchers that age Mm -hmm. and then there are guys like like big physical right-handers like Anson Siebert or Carson Wiggins or Trey Gregory Alford where if you see them on the right day and they're throwing the ball over the plate like their physicality and pure stuff is going to really excite you but they've been inconsistent in the past and just like strikes and in the quality of the secondaries so i mean for me carson wiggins is a guy who the first two times i saw him i caught him on good days i'm like how is this guy not like clearly the best in the class and then then i saw him on one of his bad days where it's kind of erratic and all over the place so if if a player like that or multiple arms like that can add some more command and control and improve the delivery a little bit repeat the release point a little bit more next spring like it wouldn't shock me for those guys to jump up because like there are going to be some teams that just love the pure stuff they have and and think that they'll be able to help them put it over the plate more consistently in pro ball. So um, there's no shortage of of arm talent in this class. It's just a matter of like 
who are going to be the guys who who go in that that range where high school pitchers need to go to get signed out of college. Yeah. Was there anybody off the list who who you're just like personally pretty high on or, or somebody you could see taking a jump forward next spring? Mm. Yeah, one guy that I really like, um, and I think we had Sammy Stafura in a similar spot last year uh, around this time, and he made a jump forward, is Trey Snyder. I like him quite a bit. He's a shortstop out of um, Missouri, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and Tennessee yeah. commit. Similar to Stafura, Snyder showed out for me at area code games. Less uh, less with the bat than with the glove, but I really was impressed with him defensively. Um, so if he comes out and looks good with the bat and adds some strength and hits, um, I mean, that's a profile that, that maybe can jump up the board. But one that I personally like who who's kind of just off this list. Um, there are some other players I definitely like in this range. Uh, let me see here. I like Levi Clark's swing quite a bit. Um, he's fascinating to me. He was a guy who was on the list and then uh, had some feedback that maybe he should be kind of just off of it, but he's a, a catcher out of Georgia, right-handed hitter, uh, strong, powerful. Again, I, I like the swing. It seems like there's maybe some more split camp opinions on the swing in the industry. Um, yeah, I'm with you on Levi Clark. I, I'm like just among high school catchers mm. after Aaron Beatty. I, I might take him after anybody – not that like high school catcher is like a big in demand position necessarily <laughs> from from clubs, but yeah, I thought he could thought he could throw for sure. Um, pop times under one nine. He's he's young for the class. I thought he had pretty good plate coverage, fastball, uh, breaking ball. Seemed to seemed to barrel everything and, and barrel yeah. everything with impact. And he'll be, I think he turns eighteen like right before yeah. the draft too. So he's on the younger side. So he's he. I'm with you on that one. And, and Ty Suthasin is a guy who he's going to be very polarizing just given his size, but he, he constantly performs. He's a shortstop out of Nevada, committed to Tennessee, very small, five foot nine, 160 pounds. But I mean, he can play the middle infield at a really high level. He has really advanced hand-eye coordination, contact skills. Super Again, it's just smooth. yeah, it's just one of those players where there are going to be some teams that are just out on him entirely, and they're going to want him to prove it in college. So. For the teams that are in on him, if he comes out next spring and he adds some strength, um, adds a little more mass to the frame, like I don't know how much he's going to be able to add long term. He's just always going to be a, a smaller guy, but he is a player who is it, he just always performs at a high level. So I could see some teams really falling in love with him. Not not like my type specifically, um, but maybe one to to keep in mind. And I love Colin Mowry, a catcher out of Illinois, like. That, that maybe is one of my favorites of, of players who are not on the list. But again, like right-handed hitting high school catcher, Louisville has done a pretty good job developing these uh, these catchers out of high school and turning them into top picks. So maybe he goes that path. But I I would be interested in signing him out of high school, just given his swing, physicality, uh, and the defense he showed at, at Erico Games. I thought he moved around really well. I think he's got a good arm. Um, so yeah, I'm a sucker for his swing. Yeah, I... One guy I, I like to, again, there's so many pitchers you could put in this group. Uh, I, I like Dylan Jordan out of Florida, hmm. who's a, um, I believe he's a Florida State commit. Um, you know, six foot three, fastball up to 95. Um, pa- some power to his slider. I think that's a potential plus pitch for him. Gets a lot of swing and miss on, on that pitch. So, you know, like Joey Oki is on the list like i think you know oki is younger than him but 
maybe more filled out than Jordan. I know Jordan's got a, a longer arm action. Um, and Oki has really, really good stuff too. Really good fastball that runs a ton and slider that sweeps like a foot and a half. So, um, so I like, obviously like him quite a bit too, but um, you know, I, I think those guys are somewhat comparable at least. So um, I could see Jordan, if especially if he comes out adding a, a tick more velocity next year, throwing strikes. I, I could see him being a guy who jumps some more. Yeah. If he's throwing high quality strikes, I definitely think he'll move up the list. I think that maybe is one of the question marks that I got back on him just doing some, some reporting for it, but I agree with you. Like there are a number of players, Jordan included, who would, would be perfect fits right on this. And it was mostly like a case of a lot of these guys getting squeezed out, like trying to think through some other ones here as I'm looking down the list who would make sense. But like if, if Skylar Sanford was on, I think that would make sense. Like, uh, yeah, there, there are any number of, of pitchers who, who could fit easily on the back of this list or even even hitters that I like, but We'll see. We got plenty of good names for the top 200 when we expand to that, and obviously we go to 500. So it's not like, not like all these guys are talking about won't be on any list. Well, we have a whole spring too. So <laughs> yeah, I'll pray for no injuries for all these guys because we always have at some point all the pitcher injuries start popping up. So hopefully we can get a, a healthier than average year. That would be nice. Do you want to talk some um, some NL West prospects too? Oh, the pro guys are it's so old news, Ben. Everyone knows about those guys. They're all they're all boring at this point. No, let's do it. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk NL West because again, we've got all the National League top tens on the site now, so you guys can kind of follow along there or check out those those lists. But yeah, let's 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 do it. Where do you want to start? Where, where should we start? Uh, I mean, which of there, these yeah. which of these top tens do you think? I feel like we have a more wide range of orgs here than our, our last conversation with the NL central. Is that fair to you? Does that track? Like I like one of these orgs a decent amount. Um, I'm not sure where you want to start. I don't care. The pot. I mean, the Padres stick out to me in part because of how many players they've traded away, how many prospects they've traded away over the years. And it's not a deep farm system, but like I look at their top 10 and it's still pretty good. <laughs> Especially when you have Ethan Salas, number one, you have, you know, Dylan Lesko, Robbie Snelling, Jackson Merrill, Dylan head, Sammy Zavala. Like it's a pretty, still a pretty strong group at the top. Yeah. I went into, I think one of the first few meetings we had just talking about farm systems uh, right after the season. I was not expecting to like the Padres, just knowing how many players they'd traded away, but they really seem to do a great job acquiring talent on the international front. They've got some guys at the back of the top 10 who are kind of these under the radar types uh, who have really performed. Um, yeah, theirs is, is quite good. I think, like, would you have them as the clear best in this group, or do you think a team that maybe is not quite as top-heavy but, but has really quality depth in the Dodgers, like which of those... Which of those farm systems would you rather have if you're running a team? Yeah, the Dodgers are still deep, but I don't know. It's a, maybe my, my expectations for them are higher just because they've consistently been a top five farm mm. system in our rankings for so many years. And the reality is like when you're picking, 
you know, when you're winning a hundred something games every year and you're picking at the back of the first rounds or not even in the first round with your first pick each year. And, and you even have a slightly smaller bonus pool internationally than other clubs. And you're not, well, they actually have been trading for some prospects, mm-hmm. I guess. And like the case of a, a Nick Frasso, but you know, you're generally trading away prospects more so um, for them to still yeah have the talent and, and the depth that they have. Yeah, and I mean, they're still like, pretty impressive, but I, like, I don't think they have a top 50 prospect. I was about to say, like, you might not have a single top 50 prospect here, but you've got a lot of players who could easily become like solid everyday regulars. And I imagine you have a ton of players who are going to be in that like 100 to 150, 175 range where there's not a ton of separation, but like they have reasonable cases to be just a top 100 prospect overall. And in some ways, the Padres are like the exact opposite. It does feel like the Padres system falls off quite a bit after like five or six, depending on how you view those players. But until they bet- trade Juan Soto, yeah, yeah, between like Ethan Salas and Jackson Merrill, you've got like a pair of top twenty-ish players. You got Robbie Snelling, who is just the BA pitcher of the year, um, and obviously I'm not going to shy away from Dylan Lesko. Uh, but you, you got a lot of of stuff and talent, and it's yeah. I mean, these are I think these are the two best in the group. I, I quite like San Francisco too. I think I'm probably going to be an outlier here and how, 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 how the giants are viewed on the BA staff at least, but I like their group quite a bit. Really? Yes. And it, a lot, of, a lot of it is because I like their, I love their 2023 draft and I love Bryce Eldridge and I love Walker Martin. And I really like Carson Wisenhunt. That's three of their top five guys. Um, I know it's, it's probably like a middle of the pack or like getting down their farm, but, I, I personally like a lot of the guys on the top of the list. So you, so you don't like the Giants? I mean, I like I like Marco Luciano. I, I like Kyle Harrison. See? I think I like Bryce Eldridge. They have two guys who will definitely be in the top 100. Do you not I, like Walker Martin? I, I think Bryce Eldridge has a chance or has a case to be in the top 100. But you have like two, maybe three top 100 guys. You know, I, I like Rainer Arias. Got a you know good young player who's super far away, but like I don't know the. I mean, it, between Luciano and Eldridge, you've got two players with more impact than maybe any single player we're going to talk about today in the NLS. Like they have monstrous power, and Eldridge specifically, the power he showed as an 18 year old is just insane. So yeah, I'm. I mean, I've talked about Bryce Eldridge enough probably on this podcast, but yeah, I. I quite like the Giants' top five specifically. I'll say, like, I really like this top five. Yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> what do you not like about Walker Martin? Uh, it's not like I I don't. He just like hasn't him. played in pro ball. People are going to be sleeping on this guy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if you know he's your number five prospect, and and it's not like just him. Like, it, it's more the guys behind him where it's like, ugh, like, I like. So, some of these guys, I, I just don't see. Have, have Reggie Crawford into... stop hitting. Have him focus on pitching. You might like him a little better. <laughs> is is he? Do you think he's a starting pitcher in the big leagues? Mm. <laughs> I, I mean, that's yeah. Like that's I, that's why I want him. To, that's why I want him to stop hitting and try and focus on pitching more. Yeah, I, I just don't see a lot of starting pitchers here, or just big league regulars beyond. Mm. Um, that top 
tier of guys. And and even like, you know, as much as I like Bryce Eldridge and then, you know, Martin, you know, interesting guy. Like I like Rainer Arias. These guys are still teenagers in rookie ball. So, mm. um, yeah, there's definitely some risk here, but yeah, I'd, I would be happy to, I'd be happy to take on some of the risk compared to maybe some of the players in the D back system that I don't like quite as much. Like I, I think the D back system of this of this NL West grouping is probably the the top ten that I like the least, or the, like the org that I like the least. Uh, it it definitely falls off pretty hard after Lawler. Maybe, maybe after one, one. Yeah. yeah, after one. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's. Jordan Lawler, Drew Jones, Tommy Troy is the top of the D-backs list at this point. I mean, I would probably rather have Tommy Troy than Drew Jones, just given how I feel about them both as hitters and the fact that I think Tommy Troy is going to stick on the infield, even if he doesn't have like the high-end defensive upside that Drew Jones has. Like Drew Jones has been nothing but question marks since he's been signed and gone into pro ball. Um, but I do think Tommy Troy is a really good hitter. He had a solid debut. Um I mean, he, he was in that same, like, Matt Shaw, phylum of player in this draft. I think it's probably a little less impact, but he does everything really well across the board. So I, I like both Lawler and Tommy Troy. Beyond that, I've got a lot of questions, I would say, about, like, what you're getting from this group. Yeah, I mean, like, Ruben Santana, who's, uh, you know, third baseman, who's in the complex league in Arizona this year. Um pretty interesting i don't know if you call him sleeper because we now have him in their top 10 but uh, yeah can you count as a sleeper at all if you're in any orgs top 10 eh. if you're in the royals top 10 can you be a sleeper i don't know how many how many people do you think know who ruben santana is at this point probably probably not too many but, yeah um but he can you know he can try the ball with impact the, the strikeouts were a little bit higher this year he's still a 18 or maybe 19 year old third baseman now 18 uh, we'll turn 19 in february yeah he was in his age 18 season so um but i yeah i like him but yeah and, and there's some other like deeper cut um international players who are kind of intriguing in the lower levels of the system but yeah certainly at the top uh, i'm with you on you know troy versus jones like i hope jones comes out and has a monster year offensively um not any questions obviously i don't think on the defensive side with him but uh kind of a uh, a lost year uh, offensively so Mm -hmm. um yeah i'd I'd, I'd agree with you with them their system being behind these other organizations we've talked about in the west yeah and i mean i i I think it's good to start with with jordan lawler and if if we like tommy troy best like having those two infielders is is quite good i mean i imagine lawler is going to be in the top 10 top 15 range for us in some capacity i don't know if you've changed your opinion of lawler at all but i would view him as one of the very best position player prospects in the game um so it's hard to it's hard to not like starting out your system with that i just think in terms of depth like i have a lot more questions kind of the anti-dodgers yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, so did you say you, you like the Dodgers the best? I'm kind of going back and forth on Dodgers and, and Padres. Like, I really do like a lot of the Padres guys quite a bit. Um, and I think it's probably been smart that we, like, if we're trying to break ties between orgs, we have tended to go with the impact players at the top just because those guys – 
the value they, they give you. They're harder to acquire than like quality depth and role players. So maybe I would lean Padres because of that, because I really do think that Ethan Salas and Jackson Merrill and Robbie Snelling are, I mean, they would probably be the top three in the Dodgers system. So maybe I'll lean, I'll lean Padres still, but it feels weird to say that actually, just kind of given how I've placed them in my head prior to this conversation. But yeah, I think if I could like take one orc, I might, I might take the Padres. Yeah. And obviously they just what graduated Bobby Miller, Emmett Sheehan, uh, Miguel Vargas. So <laughs> it's weird because I like kind of view Michael Bush as like a big leaguer already. He's not. Somebody's got a trade for him. So he's not like a. Yes. Please, he's going to be like a 28 year old in the handbook. Like still like just da- demolishing AAA and not getting an everyday opportunity. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know what else he has to do other than just get into a new I mean maybe he'll maybe he'll be playing for Chicago soon after the Dodgers trade for Dylan Cease who knows yeah I like I'm not like in love with him either as a prospect I I don't know how like I don't think he's like a perennial all-star or anything like that but he's certainly proven himself enough (laughs) in AAA where he's (laughs) coming up on what like how many games now? Like 200 games? I'll pull up what he has. But yeah, he's about to be going into his age 26 season, right? And it feels like I was watching him. When did he graduate from UNC? Or when did he get drafted? 2019? So yeah, I guess I would have been watching him his freshman year when I was still in school. So that feels kind of crazy. His His total minor league time is... Okay, so he's played... He's only played four years in the minors, which... I would have taken the over on that, just given how long it feels like he's been around. 357 total games. Uh, at AAA, he's played 209 games. He's a 293, 385, 544 hitter at that level. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what else he needs. He doesn't need to prove anything, really. He just needs a spot, just needs an opportunity. Where, where do you think he fits best defensively? Uh, well, that is a fair question. <laughs> on him because i don't think it's great in the infield Mm -hmm. um like he saw some time in left field first base might end up man he looked really bad in left field in college i'm sure he's much better than he was in college but i remember watching him play (laughs) he hasn't been like getting a lot of exposure out there so Mm. um yeah and obviously the rule changes are more more restrictive now in terms of what you what you can probably get away with from a offensive minded second baseman if you're trying to play mm-hmm. a guy over there now so um yeah it's it's really more about the you know he he has a really good feel for the strike zone really high contact quality when he squares it up there you know there is some some swing and miss in uh, there. not that much uh i mean it it got better this year i guess after his 900th plate appearance in <laughs> triple a but um it certainly has been like the history with him certainly you're right though like less so this season but yeah um definitely just want to see him like get a chance to yes please please let him get traded this play. off season that's what we need <laughs> yeah um all right who else interests you here um, I mean, uh, we haven't Josh... talked about the Rockies much at all. We should probably probably hit on them. Oh, I was going to talk some 
Dodgers guys. I like. We can we, we can either keep hitting on Dodgers or we can give the Rockies fans something to chew on here. I would say Josway DePaula is like a super interesting guy, athletic, uh, athletic bloodlines. He's got too. some NBA ties, right? Yeah, I remember hearing about him because, like, he I think he was born in he's born in the states, and you know, usually hear about bloodlines. Oh, like his uncle. Or his dad played shortstop or pitched mm-hmm. up to double A or got a cup of coffee in the big leagues. No, like his his cousin, his two cousins, uh, Sebastian Telfair and Stefan Marbury, uh, who both play in the NBA. Um, Telfair was like a <clears throat> super famous high school player um, coming up. And then obviously Marbury was a pretty big time player in the NBA. Um but moved move to the he moved to the DR, signed with them, um, and just a really good body, um, good good swing. Um, not uh, not a lot of ways to get him out, um, just in terms of like the holes in his swing because mm-hmm. uh, he just doesn't have many. So uh, really good hitter for his age, uh, pretty balanced. Not a lot of. Uh, excess movement or unnecessary movement, I should say, going on with his swing uh, and certainly has a type of frame where you could see pretty big power coming for him. He's still 18 years old and made it to, you know, low A this year, had a pretty good year. Not like, you know, huge power yet, but he's still good on base skills. I mean, yeah, he showed. So, yeah, his first year stateside at low A, he hit 284, 396, 372, 46 walks, 61 strikeouts in 74 games as an 18-year-old. Like the 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 approach that he's seemingly showing is is really exciting to me and the way you're talking about his lack of holes offensively is also intriguing. Yeah, defensively that's where he's, you know, not not as much uh, excitement there defensively. I don't think he's going to bring much. Not, not going to run around center field for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, hopefully he continues running in, around in like a corner outfield <laughs> position. But offensively, there is a lot to like. So, do you think it's enough offensively to get you excited, even if he's like a a negative in a corner outfield position? Yeah, I mean, you know, still risk. He's eighteen years old mm-hmm. and low a like i'm not putting him in a top 100 yet but yeah um, i i also wouldn't be surprised if he ends up in there next year i mean he has that kind of offensive upside yeah no that's a fun one yeah he's gone up whereas like you know diego cartaya has gone the opposite way unfortunately i mean certainly still big power there but uh kind of tough to see him hitting 189 278 379 this year in double A, I mean, he's still, he's still young, just turned 22 at the end of the season. Um, but, uh, both offensively and then even like defensively, some more questions have cropped up with him. So, uh, the miss rates seem concerning with him. Yeah. I mean, there's some, uh, certainly a chance to be like a, a bounce back candidate, but, uh, he kind of, he kind of needs to show that I think next year, cause it's a pretty, uh, underwhelming season given where where he was coming in mm. okay any any others in the dodgers i kind of want to move to the rockies unless you have someone else i mean uh, unless they're unless the dodgers have gotten maddox bruns to throw strikes consistently because his stuff is pretty loud uh yeah well he does have like you said 
loud stuff and uh, a lot of walks as well. Are... <laughs> well, maybe he can be a really fun reliever at some day. Yeah. I, they, I mean, they do have a bunch of guys who I think can be good bullpen arms hmm. uh, for them throughout the system, but um, he might end up joining that group of players. Hmm. Well, where would you have Adiel Amador on a top 100? He's the top-ranked prospect in the Rocky system. Seems like some of the best contact skills really among all prospects. Um, like reading Jeff's report on him was fairly exciting, although I'm not sure what sort of offensive impact you're going to get or what sort of role in the lineup he'll have given the power that you expect him to get to. I'm not sure how much power uh, you think he'll get to. It's like fine, um, but he's just such a small guy. Uh, the calling card seems to be the pure contact ability that he can provide. The Yeah, contact and eye for the strike zone too. I mean, really, really disciplined hitter, more walks than strikeouts pretty much every year of his career. Uh, ever since I've seen him, he's just always stood out for his um, hitting polish, especially. I, I think he could be a 15, 20 home run guy, too. Okay, I mean, that's he's still, Yeah, he's 20 years old. He's still pretty young. Um, it's, you know, he's not like a five foot seven slap guy. Um, there's, you know, there's some strength to there. I, I don't. And Jeff you know, does note that he added. A, a pretty solid amount of exit velocity from 2022 to 2023. So maybe I'm just selling him short power wise. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's probably more likely second base than shortstop mm. long-term, but I think he's the type of player who could be that top of the order, high on base thread, <clears throat> give you a 15, 20 home runs, play a pretty solid second base too. So um, he's, yeah, he's one of my favorite just um, one of my favorite offensive middle infielders in the minor leagues. I, just off the top of my head, probably like a top 30 prospect for me. Okay. Certainly certainly top 50, and that's probably being just conservative mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, so followed by Amador, we've got Chase Dollander, young Kale Fernandez, Jordan Beck, and Sterling Thompson in this top 10 for the Rockies. Uh, I'm really maybe as excited to see Chase Dollander next year over a full season as, as any prospect in baseball because I think just given some of the question marks we had for him during the spring with Tennessee, how his stuff backed up. I still think he's got a chance to be like a two or three starter. If it all comes back and clicks, that's what he was looking like at, at his peak, his sophomore year at Tennessee. Um, but just the consistency of his command, the consistency of the slider, how the fastball played. Um, it was like, it was so different year over year. I'm really curious to see what being in pro ball does for him. If he's able to figure out those adjustments, if the Rockies can unlock him or not, like, maybe not the the greatest landing spot for him, just given how tough it can be to pitch in Colorado, like thinking long-term, but I think 2024 will be very telling for Dolander. And I'm still probably more on like the optimistic or excited end of the spectrum. I I imagine I'll be higher on Dolander than most people at BA. I just think it looks so good. The stuff is, the stuff is so sharp when he's on. Um, I think he has, as high of upside as any pitcher in the class outside of Skeens when he's locked in. But where are you at with Dollander at this point? Um, I mean, yeah, I just, I, just that reaction there tells me that I'm higher on him than you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just don't love using the ninth overall pick in a draft that strong on a pitcher who seems like you need to fix something now. Like he's mm-hmm. going in the opposite 
direction where he was better in 2022 than he was in 2023. Yeah. Um, you could probably make the same argument though about, you know, Hurston Waldrop who came out and threw really well for the Braves as a first round pick, obviously later down the board, but um, you know, certainly a lot to like still with him. So yeah. still a pretty electric fastball, the slider when it's on, um, can be and has been a really good pitch for him, but um, well, like you said, very, very, very eager just to see how it all looks. We still did rank him number six year. in the class. He was like the first prospect on the board after that elite top five. So I don't think he went and like I think he went in the range he should have gone in. Even even acknowledging that the class was really strong. I'm not um, I'm not surprised that like he went in the top ten. You I'm would have taken saying, hitters like, like Tommy moves. Troy, Matt Shaw. Like you'd have taken those guys earlier. Uh. Yeah, I pro- yeah, I think so. Um, mm. just, I can't say that on draft day I would have done the same. Maybe now, given the hindsight we have for their pro experience, but I think on draft day I would have taken Dolander happily there. Yeah, I'm probably just more cautious. Well, I definitely am more you don't <laughs> cautious like pitchers. than most. We get it. You don't like pitchers. pitchers. Yeah, it's the worst <laughs> part of baseball. <laughs> no, no, nobody likes great starting pitching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to some hitters then. Uh. Who who are the hitters? <laughs> the to hitters are Sterling Thompson. Here. That's the hitter. You like him? I like the swing a ton with him. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it was always good in college. The contact skills were great. His production against velocity was great. Um, in zone contact or in zone whiff rate this year, 15%. Didn't miss a ton. Again, like I, I'm, I'm curious to see how much power he's going to hit for. I think it is solidly hit over power, but it's a swing that I've always really liked. Um, defensively that was always kind of a question is where is he going to play i think him moving around is not a function of like he's this really versatile defender who can handle a number of spots i think it's more of like you're trying to find a spot for him to fit in and where he plays is probably just going to depend on who else is on the team um but it's like a hit tool all the way for me with sterling thompson and i mean 2023 hit 293 376 obp 487 slug 14 homers 25 doubles I imagine he'll probably always be more of like a doubles over home run type power. Um, but I, I just really like his hit tool quite a bit. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be a big year for uh, Zach Veen. Just, I guess, speaking of guys who need to yeah turn things around where, you know, I, I think there's a lot of talent in there. And ever since he got to double A, which in fairness, he got to double A when he's 20 years old. But since he got there in 2022, the performance has not been mm. good to i guess be even yeah. charitable saying and he that. did but, he did deal with injuries this year so that's well, maybe something you could like exactly i mean yeah. he it seems like he played through injuries finally like at the end just you know when you know just shut it down had surgery um come back next year if it really was like we talked about with marcelo meyer playing through injuries last year with the red sox uh, kind of the same thing. Like I'm, I'm really looking to see what he does next year, assuming he comes back fully healthy. Because uh, if it, you know, if the struggles continue when he is healthy, then yeah, like that's a pretty big red flag, and he's probably going to drop out of the top ten at that point. But uh, otherwise, like if he has a, you know, if it's like the All Star break and he has a, you know, 900 plus OPS as a what a 22 year old or a 21 mm. you know 22 year old and 
double A, like, yeah, all of a sudden he's pretty, pretty exciting again, but I just don't know like which version is going to show up next year when he's, when he's healthy. Yeah. He, he's an interesting one. I think the, the underlying hitting data is a lot better than what the 2023 numbers might indicate. And so I would be a little more like hopeful that he's able to perform at double A level. Like he still walked at a 10% clip, which was good. The, the EV numbers are solid. I think he has a reasonable approach. Like there is some length maybe that'll always be a bit of a question. Maybe we'll always add some swing and misconcerns. But uh, there were times in the past where I thought people thought he was hit over power. There were some times where people thought he's going to be power over hit, just given the raw power he showed and the, the physical projection that he had. I, I'm still not sure if I think he'll be more power over hit or hit over power moving forward. But I really hope he gets a fully healthy season because I think he does a lot of things well. Uh, I think he makes solid swing decisions. Uh, I think he's a solid athlete defensively who could probably play all over the outfield for you, even even though I think he's more of a corner guy. Uh, I think he's a pretty solid runner uh, and a better base runner than maybe his pure speed. So he just does a lot of things that I like, and I've always liked the the swing itself mechanically. He's a left-handed hitter, which is nice. Um, so, yeah, it's it's weird looking at his 2023 season, but I think – there are a lot of things you could point to to be optimistic if you wanted to, uh, and it'll be his age 22 season, so he's still young-ish. But yeah, maybe you're getting to that point where you kind of need to prove it here. Yeah, I think the one, yeah, I mean, the other injury I think that really hurt them last year was Jordy Vargas going down with Tommy John surgery. I mean, e- even with that, TJ, we still have him in the top 10 for the Rocky system, mm-hmm. but... Um, you know, 19-year-old, right-handed pitcher, really good delivery, good fastball up to 97, good life, big, big swing and miss curveball with him, uh, plus pitch, out pitch for him, uh, was throwing strikes, like just a lot of good arrows that were pointing, I think, the right way toward a breakout for him. But he's going to miss the 2024 season. or So um, I think that really – dings him and, and sets him back but still still like him hopefully he can come back 2025 looking the way he was uh this past season but i think that injury really uh hurt hurt an organization that could uh, you know use some use some good arms yeah really good spin on that curveball really good depth i mean the missed numbers that he had on it were impressive um sounds like the fastball is pretty good too so no, he sounds like an intriguing arm and you need to develop as much as you can in, in Colorado because seemingly no free agents want to sign there, which makes sense. But it's tough. It would be tough to uh, try and develop a stable of pitchers in that organization. Um, so where would you put the Rockies kind of in this NL West mix? Uh, Diamondbacks. I have them ahead of them. Uh, I mean, them versus the Rockies, or excuse me, versus the Giants. They're probably in their probably like in a similar tier, I think like it. Yeah. Probably in a similar tier to the giants. Yeah, I think so too. I think you, I would you probably the giants ahead of them too. I think, I mean, I think I would go giants, but it's just cause I personally like a few of their guys more. I would probably go Padres, Dodgers, giants, Rockies, giants and Rockies, maybe the closest to, and then D backs would be a easy five for me of this grouping. Which is weird to say for a team that has Jordan Lawler, which, I mean, Jordan Lawler is probably a better number one prospect than every orc here except the Padres, pretty safely. 
Yeah, definitely. Then the Dodgers. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'd you'd still have I'd take him over Amador. Amador, yeah. And over who's the number one for the Giants right now? Kyle Harris, Harrison. Kyle Harrison. Yeah. I think I'd rather have Lawler. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'd put him two behind Ethan Salas. Mm-hmm. And I bet there are some people that like Lawler more than Salas, just given proximity, risk of catcher. Yeah, but then the Padres have uh, Jackson Merrill, who's yeah. But just comparing not, one ones. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, Padres is really good at top. I mean, it's like Padres, Rangers, Nationals. I'm trying to think of who else has like a really elite duo up top in their farm system. Probably missing on someone. Holiday and Basayo with the yeah, with yeah, that's the a good one too. Meyer and Anthony with the Red mm. Sox. No, maybe not eh, that. High. I don't like not the, that. I don't like that high. one that much. <laughs> no. I mean, I yeah. like it. I like him, but it's I, good, but not in that tier. Yeah, not in that tier. Not in that tier. Okay, so what's our what's our overall take on the the NL West teams? Do you like it more or less than the like NL Central? I feel like was maybe more average across the board, and this one is more up and down. Fun to talk through, though. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's a system as good as the Brewers. Oh in, yeah, obviously, yeah, true. That's a good this call. One. Um, yeah, like there's no, there's no system that jumps out as like, oh my god, but, um, <laughs> like, what is the I, worst I, I, system we've talked through so far? Braves or Marlins? Uh, I think the Braves probably. Yeah, yeah the Marlins were not very good though. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think still just the, the way, the the top ten of the Padres is still impressive given how many players they traded away and then the Dodgers didn't, is like didn't Kyle write a piece last year talking about how the Padres had basically traded an entire farm system's worth of talent probably I mean, they I'm have, trying to yeah. pull that up I'm trying to pull that up but it, the number of prospects they traded away that were like ranked and like well-regarded prospects was kind of crazy yeah I'm trying to they find could, that. you know James Wood is a top 100 prospect. Robert Gasser is a top 100 prospect. Yeah, it is. Uh, the headline is all 66 prospects and recent prospect graduates the Padres have traded in 33 months. Yeah, that's insane. You can really field a pretty solid team here with all the players they traded away. So just like it's it's actually insane. I'll I'll link this post in the show notes if you guys want to go see like every player that the Padres have traded away since uh, when was this starting? Mm, basically within like from 2020 on, I think. Maybe maybe a little earlier than that. Either way, I'll link it if you guys want to see all the prospects, but it's like a, a crazy amount. Robert Hassel, James Wood, Owen Casey, C.J. Abrams, oh, yeah, Xavier Edwards, Ty France, Josh Naylor, Francisco Mejia, Austin Hedges, uh, Cal Contral, Mackenzie Gore, Luis Patino, Harleen Susana, like Matt Brash. It's an insane, it's an insane number of players. Man, if they had just hung on to these guys, they might have made the playoffs. <laughs> well, I'm, have, I'm, I'm yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. they should have made the playoffs either way. They were unlucky, but yeah, pretty insane. All right, we got anything else, Ben? Any other players? We can still we can still talk more NLS. I didn't mean to end the combo if you still had guys you wanted to talk through, but we could also move on if you want. Yeah. What uh we have questions or we got we got one question we could get to today. That's a fun yeah. one. Um this is from Met's perspective on Instagram, who asks, What amateur player exceeded your expectations as a pro? 
and I feel like for me, I can make this plural and say players because there's no no shortage of them. Um, I have a number in mind for this question, so I can kind of throw some out as you get your names prepared if if you haven't prepped for this one. But um, I mean, going back to before I even like actually covered the draft, um, but this player went to UNC, so I got to cover him throughout college. Is Zach Gallen? Uh, he was a 2016 third rounder at the time, and I certainly would not have expected Zach Gallen to be the Cy Young candidate of that Tar Heels pitching staff back then. Like J.B. Bukowskis was a much more prominent prospect, and his fastball slider combination was much more lethal. Um, Zach Gallen is always a, a fine pitcher, but I really he he's vastly exceeded my expectations for him as a pro, even outside of like a context of covering him for Baseball America specifically. Uh, a few other names that stand out over the years. Uh, Ryan Jeffers, a 2018 second rounder. He was a guy that we had fairly low on the BA 500. I think he was in the 300 to 400 range. Definitely did not expect him to be as good of a catcher as he has become at the major league level. That's really stood out. He's been a, a solid regular since then. And I feel like that was a really good pick from the twins at the time. Um, Spencer Strider obviously is a good one, like multiple times now. Strider has exceeded my expectations both out of college, like where he was selected. Then even like covering him as a prospect with the Braves, I was like light on him multiple times, had multiple attempts to to get on, on board with him. And he's just been way better than I expected. He's fourth round 2020 pick. We didn't have him on the BA 500. Uh, he was like a notable prospect out of high school, but he came back from an injury in college. Um, and the Braves were really just on, like I think their analytics group ID'd him as a guy whose stuff uh, was something they were excited about. Um, and obviously he is a Cy Young candidate at this point, so that would be one. Um, but do you have any that, that come to mind, Ben, or a single player that stands out? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can go like different directions because even, even players you like exceed your expectations, right? Like I liked Juan Soto yeah. a lot as an amateur. Like I liked Corbin there. Carroll a ton, and he's been better than I expected already. Yeah, like Soto was, you know, I mean, you can see what, what he is as a defender now, like is he's developed into that. So like, you know, you knew you weren't getting a lot of defensive value, but he was a really polished hitter uh, with like, you know, doubles gap type power. And now he's grown into this, like, you know, monster, both for uh, ability to get on base and hit for power, uh, be like one of the best hitters of his generation. Like, you know, Jordan Alvarez, the same thing. Um I guess for for any player that becomes one of the best hitters of their generation, it's probably safe to say they've exceeded most people's expectations because that's that's not an expectation you put on anyone. Uh, Yeah, I mean, like you know, maybe you put it on Vladdy. Yeah, like Devers, like these guys are like, oh, like I could see him, or like Wander Franco, like I could see him becoming this like you know superstar type player. Whereas, like, yeah, then yeah, like Jordan Alvarez, it's like you know, a lot to like there offensively didn't see him becoming, the, you know, the, and I think the Dodgers probably were in the same boat who signed him. <laughs> didn't see him becoming this absolute monster that he is now. Um, you know, two, two guys who were lower, lower tier types than that. Uh, I mean, Fernando Tatis Jr. Signed for, mm-hmm. uh, it was like 700,000 with the White Sox. Um, but like he's a guy who after he signed just got you know bigger, stronger, faster, um, better arm, everything just ticked up. The swing got better, defensive ability got better. 
like just would not have expected that. And he was very much a guy that a lot of, a lot of international uh, scouts were um, lukewarm at best on. Um, so I think he'd be one example. Uh, Ozzy Albies is a guy I saw when he was probably 15 or 16 years old. He's probably the same height he is now. So not that tall. So you like, loved him. Yeah, no, he weighed like 120 or 130 something pounds. Um, good athlete, ran well. Um, didn't see like a ton that really jumped out there. Uh, certainly never would have thought he'd be a 30 plus home run hitter. So um, he he way exceeded what what I would have uh, expected from him from when he was 15, 16 years old. Um, and then there's you know like the late round draft guys were like one who always jumps out for me from doing the Astros system was Dallas Keuchel, who was, <clears throat> you know, they drafted him out of Arkansas, uh, seventh round pick, um, mid to upper eighties in college scraping like a 90 maybe, or like 91, 92 at most. Um, so did not, you know, good pitch ability guy, uh, moves the ball around the zone, that kind of thing. Um, you know, maybe a back of the rotation starter. Again, this is why he went in the seventh round. And then he ends up winning a Cy Young award. So um, also, again, like why I'm a fan of taking some of the pitchers later on, because sometimes these guys, you can you can develop and find arms, I think, later in the draft. Although yeah. he was a pretty unusual case, obviously. <laughs> I like that general strategy as well. It seems like it's a lot easier to kind of make a prospect later than with a hitter. Um, at least there are at least a lot of examples that you can pull out of that that maybe you can't for the hitting side. Okay. Uh, I would also add just Gunnar Henderson and Michael Harris. They weren't as light of guys as, as you're talking about with Dallas Keuchel, but second round in 2019 for Gunnar Henderson, I wouldn't have expected him to be a, a similar sort of player to Bobby Wood Jr. And, and here we are. And then Michael Harris, I think even at the time, like I liked him more as a pitcher. He was a two-way player coming out of Georgia. Good breaking ball, good mover on the mound. Um, thought he was fairly raw as a hitter offensively, but clearly he was a much better hitter than, than I expected at the time. 2019 third round pick um, and, and put together a sensational rookie season. Great defender. Hits, hits for some power. So, yeah, those would be some of the ones that come to mind for me. Although I don't have any, like, post-10-round guy yet. I probably should. There, there are probably going to be guys like that that are coming in the future for me. Yeah. Yeah, we could do another two hours on guys I was too low on. That's for sure. Oh, yeah, there, there are no shortage of them. That's why it's funny when he said, what player, singular, as if yeah. we've only missed on one. <laughs> that would be great, but unfortunately, it's not the case. I wish. <laughs> That'd be amazing. All right, well, that's all I had for today, Ben. Those are the only questions I had queued up for us. Um, anything else you want to mention before we get out of here? Uh, we're just finishing the prospect handbook right now. So, uh, um, we're finishing, huh? Win <laughs> winter, winter, like we're finishing. Well, we got the winter meetings to blow up all our, our list pretty soon. Are you going to the winter meetings? Is that something you do? I, I am staying home this year to focus on handbook, focus on other stuff. So no, no Nashville for me this year. Is that a bummer for you or is the winter meetings not something you're interested in going to? I like going to the winter meetings, but um, it's at like the time of year where it's like just 
such crunch time for so many things going on international yeah. signing period coming up pretty soon so um it's 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 fun to be there but like it's not like other a, things that are probably more pressing for for me yeah we got yeah. yeah we got bigger things <laughs> cool all right well that's all for me too um thank you guys for hanging out with us thanks for listening um we should be back next week uh to talk more more baseball so we appreciate you guys we appreciate the support for ba if you're a baseball america subscriber thank you so much for that um for ben i'm carlos so long everybody <laughs>